Let's pray together. God, we praise You this morning. We praise You for Your holiness. We praise You for Your mercy. We praise You for loving us. God, we're so thankful as we've just been singing about and reading and hearing just about Jesus' birth, that God, You entered into Your creation and You came to redeem and to save us. We praise You, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. We thank You that in You that there's life. In You there's salvation. In You, Your Word says that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. So Jesus, I just pray this morning, Lord, we pray that this service, that this sermon will honor You. I pray, Lord, for any distractions in my head and my heart, but also in any of our hearts and our heads this morning. I pray that we can just set that aside and focus on Your truth and Your love here this morning. And we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a little bit of a recap of what was said over here, but also where we've been this Advent season as a church. We lit, uh, what we've been going through is the Advent season, and each week we've been taking a different theme of Advent and focusing in on that theme. So a few weeks ago, we looked at this theme of hope. We simply looked at Jesus is our living hope. He's our living hope. And what does that mean? It means His Word can be trusted. And all who believe in Him will have eternal life. The second candle we lit was all about peace. And, the, and really what we meant by that was that Jesus brings us peace. For everyone who believes in Him, there's peace between them and God. The Bible calls that concept reconciliation. The Bible also says the opposite is true, that if we're not in Christ, we're enemies of God deserving His wrath, His justice for our sin. But we see that Jesus came, and through His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, He ushered in peace, reconciliation between man and God. We also looked at the theme of joy, that Jesus is our joy, that true joy can be found in Jesus because His promises are true and never changing. Our joy should not be found in our circumstances because guess what? Circumstances change. I might be really happy one week and then one thing happens that will completely what, give me a meltdown. I'll, I'll break down and my joy will be lost. But rather, true joy is found in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus never changes. And then last week, we looked at this theme of love, that Jesus shows us His love. In Jesus, we see that God pursued us. He came down from heaven to die for sinners. The cross, which is behind me here on the stage or the platform back in the baptismal area, that cross is the reminder of God's love for us. When we see that, right, most people might say, well, why is there a cross? That's like a Roman execution. It's very barbaric. That's a death penalty. For us, we see it as what? The symbol of God's love for us. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And today we get to the final candle, the Christ candle. And we just read in Titus, and I want to read the one verse and highlight it. Sophia read this, He, being Jesus, gave His life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us His very own people. Let me say that again. Jesus gave His life to free us, to cleanse us, and to make us His very own people. It's really easy to get lost in the chaos of Christmas. Let's be honest. They're shopping. There's cooking, there's decorating, there's getting the family pictures with Santa Claus, which sounds like it's fun times, but I'm not a picture guy, so that just stresses me out. 
I've been avoiding Middle Country Road because I don't want to deal with the traffic. The mall gets backed up all the way, it seems like, to like center each Walmart. I'm like, what, what is going on? Right? There's busyness, the ugly sweater parties, the Christmas parties, the list goes on. But my hope and my prayer is that today, this morning, right now, is we can reshift our attention, reshift our focus on the true significance of Christmas. I know this is very hard. If you're hosting a party today, I, I want to challenge you. Stop thinking about that and worrying. Let's just take a few moments to just focus in and dial in on the good news of the gospel. And this is the good news of Christmas, that God eternal, God the creator of all, the one who created the planets, the stars, the sun, the moon, the, the beautiful, it's overcast outside, maybe bad example, the, the beautiful outdoor nature, even those geese that I really, they're my enemies. I don't like those geese, but God created them. You can ask me why after service. This is, these aren't in my notes, by the way. But God eternal, the creator of all, he what? Enters in and lives amongst his creation. The one who created time enters into time and is born as a baby. Jesus, he lived a perfect, a sinless life. Something that none of us can do. And if you claim to be perfect, I'll ask your spouse. I'll ask your parents. I'll ask your siblings. I'll ask your children. Right? None of us can be perfect. And Jesus made a way for sinners to become righteous before a holy and sinless God through His sacrificial death on the cross. And that's the good news that I want to focus on. And I hope we can just dial in and stay in this service this morning as we continue to worship the Lord. So hopefully you're there. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1. And just a little reminder, Matthew's key themes of his Gospel, he focuses on the kingship of Jesus. That Jesus is the humble servant King. He also focuses on, in the first couple of chapters, all the prophecy that Jesus' birth and life and His ministry fulfills from found in, in all the Old Testament prophets hundreds of years prior to Jesus' arrival. So Matthew chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed.
and I'm sorry. But if you're a note taker and you want the three main ideas of what we'll go through in this text this morning, these are the three main things we'll look at. Number one, the three responses to Jesus' birth. The three responses to Jesus' birth. The second, we're going to look at very, 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 very briefly, Jesus' kingship versus Herod's kingship. And then lastly, we'll look at the gifts for the king. So the three responses to his birth, Jesus' kingship versus Herod's kingship, and the gifts given to the king. Yes? Could you run up? Can you run batteries for me, Robbie? I don't know if I'm going to stay behind the pulpit, but I'll, I'll do my best. So number one, the three responses to Jesus' birth. If you saw in verse two, the first response we see is this, the response of the wise men. I don't know if you caught it, the response of the wise men. In verse two, they see this, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and when it rose, we have come to worship him. Now, there's not a lot that's known biblically about the wise men. We don't know where they came from specifically, other than it says they came from the east. We don't know how many of them there were. It's Christian and and church tradition that there were three based on the three gifts they've given. But we don't know. It's more likely that they traveled with a group of other people, of other wise men, of people under them, of servants. We don't know their names. Some church fathers have tried to give them names. But here's what we do know. They were Gentile, pagan men who had wealth, who had status, and most likely had power. They were counsels to the king. Think of Daniel and his relationship with the king. Right? He had power. They were skilled astronomers. They studied the stars. They were highly educated. And it was revealed to them by God. We don't know how God spoke to them, but it was revealed to them by God by a light or a star thank you, in the sky. And they knew a king was born. They were studying the stars, they saw something, and they knew a king had been born. They were diligently seeking after the baby who was born to be king of the Jews, and they're looking to worship Jesus. A little later in the text, we see that they were filled with joy. In verse 11, they're filled with joy when they see that star again. We also read that they fell down and they worshiped the baby, Jesus, when they saw him. Just think about that. A, a group of, of men, right, seeing Mary and Joseph and bowing down to a baby. Just that imagery. Bowing down to Jesus. And although these wise men, they're not God-fearing Jews, it was revealed to them by God that Jesus had been born and they followed, they were obedient to where God was leading them. When they found Jesus, what did they do? Their attitude, their response was to worship him. They were humble before him. They honored him. Now, we don't know whether they became God-fearing men or not, but we do know that they were obedient to where God was leading them. And for whatever reason, God used them for the birth of Jesus. They worshiped him. So that's the response of the wise men. They worshiped Jesus. The second response we see is the response of the king, the response of Herod in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, the news that a king was born, when he heard that, he was troubled. And it says, not only him, but all Jerusalem was troubled with him. History teaches us a lot about Herod. 
He came into power about 47 B.C. He was appointed governor. And about seven years later in 40 B.C., he became known or became the king. He was also known as Herod the Great. Some of his accomplishments are these. He was the only ruler of Palestine at this time who ever succeeded in keeping the peace, bringing order from disorder. He was a great builder. He was the builder of the Temple of Jerusalem. At times, he was generous. In 25 B.C., during a famine, he had actually melted down his own golden plates to go and to feed the starving people in the midst of this famine. But, right, you might say, wow, Herod's a pretty good guy. This sounds really nice. He had a major flaw, his character. He wielded power for far too long, and the more older he got, he became more suspicious of everyone around him. If he suspected anyone around him of, of looking to steal his power or to rival him or to betray him, he had them swiftly killed. He murdered his wife. He murdered his wife's mother, his eldest son, his two other sons. He was ruthless. As it, as it got closer to his death, and he knew it was the end of his life, he knew it was coming, he knew that not a tear would be shed for him from the people because he was a tyrant ruler. So what he did is he had a plan. He went to Jerusalem. He found every good citizen or, or, or really the distinguished citizens of Jerusalem. He arrested them. He commanded his guards that when he died, those prisoners were to be executed. That way at least some tears would be shed for his passing. R ruthless. Murderer. Augustus, the Roman emperor, had said this, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his own son. It's safer to be his pig than his son. And again, towards the end of his life, he was known for being a murderous old man who would do anything to keep his power. And how did Herod react about the news of a new king being born? It says he was troubled. There was a baby who was born that threatened his power, that threatened his throne, his kingship. And it's no wonder why the text says all Jerusalem was troubled with him. They're probably worried about we're going to get killed in the crossfire of his wrath. Right? There's some fear coming from the people in Jerusalem. Now Herod the Great, he felt threatened by Jesus' birth. Later in the text, we see that he tries to even murder the newborn king by tricking the wise men into telling him where he is. And then we, we just read, God told them, don't go back to Herod. But he also goes and he kills all male babies under the age of two in that region. We see his hatred his disgust, his selfishness towards the news of Jesus' birth. And then we get to the last response, or I should say the lack of response. The response of the chief priests and the scribes. Look back at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. The last response we see is from the religious leaders of the Jewish people. We see both ends of the spectrum. We see the Sadducees, which would be the chief priests, and the scribes, who are most likely the Pharisees, being summoned to give Herod an answer to where the Christ was to be born. If you know anything about Jewish history and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they don't like each other. Their, their doctrine, their theology does not line up at all. But here they came together because the king asked them a question. Where is the Christ to be born? And they do correctly quote from Micah that the prophecy that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. 
they correctly searched the Scriptures and they, that they knew, but at the same time, I'm going to argue this, they still missed the significance of Jesus' birth. It's sad, we don't read that they went joyfully with the wise men to go look for the Messiah, to go and look for the Savior to worship with the wise men. They seem to be really indifferent by the event. right? Oh, well, I think he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They simply did their job and they went home. One, one commentator put it this way. right? They probably went home and bragged to their family, hey, guess what? Herod asked me a question and we gave him the right answers. We did so good today. We did a great job answering the king. Right? They knew their Bible. They knew their text, but at the same time, they didn't. They missed it. They missed it. They're really indifferent towards Jesus' birth. Later in throughout Jesus' ministry, we see the constant clashing, the battle between the religious leaders and Jesus. And here's my question for all of us today. How do you respond when you hear about the birth of Jesus? How do you respond? Are you like Herod? Maybe you were forced to come to church today. Maybe you hate church. You hate God. You have no love for Jesus. You're here simply because you want to keep the peace in your family. Right? You, you know, I, don't, I don't want to have any conflict today. I'll just suck it up and go. I don't really want to be here. Right? Or are you like the religious leaders? Maybe you're happily here today. Maybe you think about Jesus around the holidays, around Christmas time or Easter time, or maybe sometimes at funerals. You enjoy singing all the classic Christmas hymns. Or maybe you say this, you know, I like church. Church makes me feel good. Last week, Stephanie and I went to Connecticut to visit her family. And we also went because Stephanie wanted to sing in an alumni uh, chorus concert. The high school had a concert, and the alumni were invited to go and join them and sing. So we went there a little early, and I was holding and babysitting Naya, and she was on my lap. And Stephanie, along with maybe 15 or 20 other high school students and a few other alumni, they're practicing, they're going through some of these songs. And two of them are, are Christmas, Christian hymns. And I'm sitting there with Naya, and they're practicing. Again, a beautiful three- to four-part harmony. Naya is like, like this. She's like, she was sitting calm and quiet. I'm like, how is this? She was mesmerized, and so was I, because I closed my eyes, and I was just rocking her back and forth. And for me, I'm like, man, this is beautiful. Listen to them. Worship God. This is amazing. They're singing out Gloria and Excelsior Deo. Right, we, we all sang that as beautiful harmony. I don't know if you know what that literally translates to, but it means this, glory to God in the highest. You have all these students praising God, seemingly. And then what happened after they're done practicing? It took a few minutes to just hear how they said and how they treated and how they talked to each other to know they weren't worshiping. They were simply reading words and singing words off a piece of paper. Right? And to me, I got a little sad because I'm like, man, this was beautiful. It's like, maybe heaven will sound like this. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. And then it got right out of it by just hearing how their hearts really felt. They're only doing what they're supposed to do because for a grade, because there's their concert. Right? Are we indifferent? Are you indifferent about Jesus' birth? Right? You're like, ah, oh, man, okay, yeah, that's good. But I don't really care. Or... Are you like the wise men? Do you worship Jesus? When we sing these songs, do we actually believe what we sing? Do we give Jesus, the King of Kings, our worship? Do we give Him our life? Do we give Him our everything? And I'll say just from the responses of these three people, the only appropriate response to Jesus' birth, and again, this is, not, this is a no-brainer, 
The only response is what the wise men did, to worship him, to fall down before him in adoration. The second point, very briefly, I want to look at Jesus' kingship versus Herod's. With Jesus, when we read him throughout the gospel, what we know about him, Jesus is humble. Jesus is a servant. Jesus is loving. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, something a slave would do. Jesus is the shepherd. We just read it in verse 6, but also Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus in John's gospel is called the giver of life. He has the authority to give us life. On the other side, we have Herod. Herod is fearful. He's a threatening tyrant. The people around him are walking on eggshells, hoping and, and praying that maybe they don't, I don't want, I don't want to look suspicious. I, you know, Herod, don't, you're the king. I don't, want to, I don't want to step on your toes. There was peace, but there wasn't real peace. It was peace threatened with murder. So you have Jesus, the giver of life. You have Herod, the taker of life. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, we read it, and I'll read it again. This is the prophecy that we read from, taken from Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. In that text, we see Jesus as the sovereign ruler, the king who has come to be the shepherd to his people. And I want to encourage you, if you're here this week, come on Wednesday because we're going to do a little bit of a a word study on that word shepherd. It's really interesting, but I didn't really want to get off course this morning on that word and go down a 10-15 minute tangent. But come Wednesday because there's a lot about what that means for him to be the shepherd for his people Israel. Right. So we have the responses. We have Jesus versus Herod and how they rule. And the last we see is the gifts for the king. Verse 10, let's read it again. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now that's the wise men. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Right here we see the wise men accomplished their journey. They accomplished what they set out to do, to find the newborn king of the Jews, Jesus. And what do they do? They present him with gifts. It was believed that where they're from in in the east, that it was a common practice at that time that one could only approach a king if you had a gift for the king. Matthew tells us what they brought, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's what they brought. But Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us why they brought it. What's the significance of each gift? Now, there is Christian and church tradition, and the early church fathers have gleaned and have, have, have sort of said, you know, I, think, I feel like this is what the significance meant for each gift. And I thought it's really interesting because it does point us to truth of the gospel. So let me just say this. Right, what I'm going to say, it's, it's more so church tradition. It's not found in the text, but we do know they brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But here's what is believed each gift symbolized. Gold is the most precious metal of all. It was the symbol of wealth and value for the king. The more gold you had, the more power you had, the more wealth you had, the more status you had. The gold they brought symbolized, and this is where church tradition comes into play, it symbolized Jesus' royalty, that he is the king, that Jesus is king. 
Then you have frankincense. Frankincense, not Frankenstein, frankincense, it's costly. It's this beautiful smelling incense that was used for special and for rare occasions. You didn't use it every day, it was for something special. It was suggested by an early church father that it was stored in a special chamber in front of the temple and was sprinkled on certain offerings as a symbol for the people's desire to please the Lord. And in this way, frankincense was a gift for a priest. And we know from Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our mediator. We don't follow a priesthood, we follow Jesus. Lastly, we have the gift myrrh. Now myrrh is a perfume that was expensive, not as costly as frankincense, but it was costly. It was commonly used when people died to embalm their bodies and to mask the decaying smell. And we know that at Jesus' birth, we read that Nicodemus, the Pharisee that went to Jesus at night, Nicodemus brings myrrh for Jesus' body. So we have myrrh symbolizing, it's believed, Jesus' humanity. It was a gift you'd give to someone at a funeral. Right? So it points to what? The death of Jesus as well. And here we have these three gifts pointing to the gospel truth that Jesus is the King of kings. He came to be our mediator between God and man. It says that when He died, He tore the veil in the temple. He was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless and a perfect life. And He died on the cross. Three days later, He rose again. Jesus, being fully God and fully human, paid the penalty in full for our sin on the cross. As John the Baptist proclaimed, he says this, Behold, when he sees Jesus, he points to Him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I want to end with this question. Each one of us here today will leave here facing a decision. You have no choice. I'm sorry I entrapped you with, with, this, with, this, with this decision. What does the significance of Jesus' birth mean for you? Right? We have to make that decision when we leave. Are you threatened by it? Are you thankful for it? And then you just, ah, well, it's okay. Okay, I'll, I'm going to go back to my life. Are you indifferent? Or does it lead you to worship Him? Is Jesus your King? Does your heart belong to Him? And last week, Steve Massaro preached a message that was really convicting. All about, as a Christian, we're supposed to give our all before the Lord. Fully follow Him. Go His way, His direction, His will, not our own. So as we leave here this morning, we're all faced with this question, how do I respond to His birth? Is it the most significant thing that's happened in human history? Besides the resurrection? Or... Was it just a nice story that's in the Bible that we think about twice a year? Or, you want nothing to do with it? Again, it's important how we answer this. Why? Because Jesus makes it clear that if we believe in Him, we'll have eternal life. We will spend an eternity. What's eternity mean? Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever and ever and ever and ever. It's kind of scary when you think about eternity. Right? Forever. We will spend an eternity worshiping Him, being in His presence in heaven if your faith is in Jesus. But the opposite is also true. If you do not believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if He's not the King of your heart, the King of your life, the Bible says you'll spend an eternity separated from Him forever 
in a real place. Not a mental place, not a, a real physical place called hell. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, don't wait. The Bible says we're not guaranteed the next day. What does that mean? Unfortunately, we don't, I, I don't say, okay, well, I'm going I'm I'm to choose to die at 80 and I'll live a long life, right? No, things happen. We live in a fallen, corrupt world where sin exists and happens. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Don't wait. And I'll say this, the best gift that we've ever received has been Jesus Christ. On the cross, He paid it all. It was His death, His resurrection, His blood that was shed that covers us. And the Bible says if we put our faith in Him, if we believe, if we confess Him as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into what? The kingdom of light. That we've come from death to life. So our only appropriate response to worship our King, or sorry, our only appropriate response is to worship our King. As we're about to sing, and I hope you mean these words that we're about to sing, O come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can trust in it. We thank You for Your love. I pray that we can all just be reminded as we leave and get back into the busyness of the holiday time, we can just say thank You. Thank You, God, for intervening. Thank You for being our mediator. Thank You for coming and pursuing us. Jesus, we praise You and we thank You for Your death and Your resurrection. And as Your Word says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, then we will be saved. We thank You again for the the best gift that we've been given, salvation. That Jesus, You paid it all. There's nothing else needed on our behalf. We can never be good enough. We can never earn eternal life on our own. It's all of what You did, Jesus. So we thank You and we praise You. And Jesus, we just pray this all in Your holy, perfect, and precious name. Amen.